0: we start Dan I have to say I have never seen a person use all of the openings in a baseball hat your head is huge so folks out there Dan is wearing a baseball hat turned around backwards and all of the opening like little little adjustment things are open except for two
1: I have a big fat Irish head a big fat Irish yeah you know when I was young I got hit in, <clears throat> excuse me, I get choked up when I talk about this. I get. I got hit in the head uh, by a, a girl in the neighborhood with a log, like a big, thick, heavy branch. Hit me smack in the head. And I remember looking really confused at her and wondering why she did that. And uh, it didn't hurt. It didn't really hurt. When I was young, pushed me off the monkey bars. So I
0: pushed her down the stairs and she lost a tooth. My God! I know. I had to. My parents came in,
1: and that started your your journey of crime and hatred. Yeah, she did. Though she pushed me right off like the monkey bars, and it was really high up. Tit for tat. Then I got, uh, and this girl became a very, very close friend, and someone I'm still friends with to this day. But uh, we, you know, went to school together from grade four on. She, in grade four or five, kicked me right square in the nads to the point where I was bruised down there. And she got in a lot of trouble. And later that winter, I threw a snowball at her and didn't realize that there was ice in it. And I broke her nose. (laughs) Oh, no. Yeah. But we became friends.
0: Well, um, Weirdos, we have a special guest with us this week, uh, returning to the cast. He's been with us before. He's an intrepid traveler uh, through the world of podcasts. And he first brought us the um, lovely two-parter on the Titanic, which then prompted me to watch that movie Ghosts of the Abyss, which I still haven't recovered from.
1: Why? What do you mean?
0: Well, Sean, hello. Sean Tucker, Hello. hello.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me back.
0: There he is. So Ghost of the Abyss is the movie. Uh, it's it's not a fictionalized movie. It's a real movie about James Cameron going down every five minutes to see the Titanic. But they do this thing where they show you the ruins of the boat. And then over that, they superimpose footage of what the boat looked like perfectly. And it's really freaking chilling.
2: It's very cool. It was one of my favorite parts. Uh, and you mentioned that as well of that documentary, just because it. It's hard because of just the vastness of the ship to get a sense of it when they're they're in those submersibles. So hold on, just, Sean, is this part three? This is part three. Are we doing part three? Yeah. Well, I've, I've just uh, I've just been released uh, from prison for serving sixty days for stealing that Titanic jacket. So uh, so I'm back, and right. the long-awaited part three for all the weirdos out there. I know they were waiting. So, yeah, they've been waiting longer, uh, you know, like James Cameron for uh, the second Avatar. But you
0: mentioned that film to me and I watched it and I thought, oh, my God, it's going to be like watching Jacques Cousteau. It's going to bore me to tears, but it's really haunting.
2: It's really, really well done. Um, And in terms of just footage of the wreck and a lot of it has to do with what you were talking about, about the the way they just kind of create the landscape of the wreck in terms of putting those, the superimposing on there. And you have a sense of where you are in the ship and what, what it looked like before the deterioration and uh, that sort of thing. It was, uh, yeah, it was, it was really, really well done. So I, I, I watched that uh, probably a couple times a year. I'm embarrassed to admit. I'm
1: going to watch it again. Um, Speaking of ghosts, I just thought Riley, you'd like to know, I watched ghost. I don't know if you've ever seen it with Patrick Swayze. And Whoopi Goldberg, great scene where he sees the light and he sees these black uh, shadowy creatures uh, make a really cool noise. Make wonderful music.
2: Dan and I used to get together once a week and recreate the clay scene, the pottery scene with the Unchained Melody scene. Just in our pajamas, just to see where it went
1: and we would we would pick different friends to be the clay pot. Yes. And uh, it was always a real pleasure for, you know, our friends like to be that clay pot and spin around and we'd giggle and laugh and mm-hmm. anyway, speaking of giggling and laughing, I hear that you have Sean a real funny happy story to share with us. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well that that depends who you're talking to. I don't know if I describe it quite like that, but I I find it very interesting. It's it's not the it's not the Titanic. It's pretty far away from that, but it's uh it's a cool yarn, I believe.
1: I'm actually really pumped for this because this is so different from anything Riley and I have done so far, mm-hmm. and a band that I I actually quite like. So I'm I'm really looking forward to this.
0: So, Shawna, you ready to um, to uh, regale us with tales of the
2: weird? I'm gonna do my best. Sure. Okay, take it away. So I'm gonna talk a little bit today about the Manic Street preachers and one of their members in particular but I'll give you a little bit of background Dan says he's a a fan of the band I would be lying if I said I was and that's not in the sense that I don't like them I just wasn't that familiar with them Uh, they came along at a time in kind of the late 80s early 90s when uh, I guess post-punk had just kind of finished and it was a time of uh, shoegazing
1: absolutely absolutely can, what I don't know what that is. Can you explain to me and the rest of everybody else on the planet?
2: Shoegazing is, it depends who you talk to. Some, uh, you know, musical journalists will tell you that shoegazing is, it, it came from a, a disconnect between the band and the audience just because they were so into the emotional turmoil or whatever of the, the music they were creating. Musicians and other people will tell you shoegazing comes from the fact that a lot of the music has a lot of effects. So there's a lot of pedals involved with the guitars and the instruments being used. So they were constantly staring down at their shoes. So the the manic street preachers don't fall into that category? They do not. They were kind of the antithesis of that. They were a rock and roll band. They've been, the, so they were Welsh. They are Welsh. They're still alive. We're going to get into that. Uh, but they are still around and uh, they were kind of compared to The Clash, you know, that that type of music, the the way their music was was played and the fact that a lot of it, it was kind of an alternative early alternative rock sound but they had a very kind of leftist political outlook. They're the lyrics were were heavily steeped in raging against capitalism and that sort of mm-hmm. thing. So mm-hmm. that's the type of band they were. I'll be like I said, I'll be honest uh, right up from the get-go, I don't know a ton about this band. And I was very into the music of that time. Mm-hmm. But these guys were these guys weren't really on my radar.
1: Well, see, I'm surprised by that, Sean, because I wouldn't I couldn't when you told me what you were going to be doing, I thought, oh, that makes sense. Cause I I know you're you're deep into music, and I knew you
2: were deep into British music as well, right? Yeah. So I'm surprised you, because they were huge. Sometimes a band just slips by you. They they kind of you know fly under the radar, and you you find them either later, or you don't find them at all, or you find them for reasons like this. Can
0: I ask you guys a quick question, because I love asking people this question. I know it's completely off topic, but it's fun, and we're having fun tonight. It's summer, so let's have fun. So name a band that you weren't into when they were really current. but you're into now i'll start for me totally eurythmics hated them at the time and learned to love them and annie lennox is now one of my favorite people hated it like when diva came out hated it not into it and now i love eurythmics and annie lennox now you go
1: you go first
2: dan i'm gonna have to think about this
1: very easy tragically hip hated them in the 90s through the 2000s and then it was probably the last 10 years, especially when Gord Downey did A Secret Path, and I started listening to that and got involved with that story through my other work. And then going back and listening to all the back catalog, I really, really, really liked them. And I think it was me being snobby 20 or year, 25 years ago that made me not appreciate them uh, versus anything that was actually wrong with their music. Gord Downey was an incredible songwriter okay sean
2: honestly it would be joy division and i know that sounds weird because i've been into them for quite a while but i went the opposite way because i i was a fan of new order first and i didn't really know the history of joy division and how new order became who they were from joy division and Ian curtis and all that i would say for me that band would be joy division because when they originally came i mean they were done by 1980 and i was like a child you know I was like in kindergarten so yeah I became a fan of New Order and then it was kind of mind-blowing to me to find out later knowing what New Order was and kind of that electronic and the synth and the sampling and that sort of thing to go back and hear the origins of that so originally I wasn't going to because you guys have talked about this before you were working on something and you almost abandoned it or mm-hmm. something else came and that very much happened as you guys know I was I was looking at two other subjects, which hopefully at some point I will get to do down the road. Mm-hmm. And my son, who is nine, asked me what I was doing. And I told him and he asked me, well, why don't you do you listen to a lot of music podcasts and you love music? Why don't you do something about music? And he kind of steered me in this direction. So I have to give you know props or a shout out to, to my son. It's crazy during this this lockdown, how, uh, I don't know, Dan, about you, but I was always close to my children, but the amount of time I spend with them, like my best friend is nine years old.
1: Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's a, I have been yeah. with the, you know, my wife and two children every day, every day for what is it now? How long?
2: It's been a long Over a year. year and three months.
1: Yeah. And it, uh, the only time we're not together is when we're sleeping or I'm doing this.
2: And I got my first dose of the vaccine today. We're all—all all three of us have had uh, our first vaccine. Hmm. Yeah, at some point we can maybe actually do this facing each other. That's the goal. So that's what led me to this. So the Manic Street Preachers, a little bit of background: They're a Welsh rock band formed in Blackwood, Wales, in 1986. The band consisted of and consists of now James Dean Bradfield, who is uh, is the lead guitarist and lead vocalist, Sean Moore, drums, and then Nicky Wire was originally the bassist still is and originally did the lyrics they are known to their fans the tragically hip is known as the hip they're known as the manics to their friends and as i said they play an alternative type rock with themes heavily based in politics and the plight of the common man (laughs) and that sort of thing uh early years they started bradfield originally along with Moore, wrote the music wire like i said nikki wire focused on the lyrics So this is kind of neat. The name of the band, although this is kind of disputed, but apparently Bradfield, the lead singer one day was busking in Cardiff and got into an altercation with a homeless man. And it ended with an argument with the homeless man saying to him, what are you boy? Some, some kind of manic street preacher. Mm. And that's where the name of the band came from. Yeah. Interesting. That's very cool. Their goal with their music was to uh, revolutionize rock and roll at the time when, like I said, Britain and the UK was was dominated by Shoegaze and Acid House. Uh, They had a roadie and a, a driver. They were a band trying to make it. And any band that's tried to make it knows that there's a lot of time spent in vans and playing small gigs and that sort of thing. So their guy was this guy named Richie Edwards. And they liked him so much that eventually they asked him to join the band. And he did on rhythm guitar and then became the chief lyricist in the band alongside Nicky Wire. Mm. At that time, he was also designing the record sleeves, their artwork, he was doing their press releases, kind of one of those, you know, uh, do it yourself type situations. But they relied on him for a lot in terms of their image and everything. They knew him because his family had lived and he had grown up in Blackwood as well. And that's where he met them at the the Oakdale Comprehensive School, which is where all four members went. He joined the band and became the fourth member in 1989. And it's abundantly clear that they really liked him for his personality and uh, you know his outlook and the lyrics because musically speaking, he was not talented. Uh, <laughs> his uh, his real contribution was lyrics and design. And again, I'm going to draw comparisons a few times throughout this to Ian Curtis of Joy Division because Ian Curtis wasn't known as being you know musically uh, proficient as well. His his strengths really. Uh, came from the lyrics and i guess uh richie was very uh very similar in that regard like so not musically talented to the point that he was the rhythm guitarist he wasn't the singer he was the lyricist and the rhythm guitarist but he would mime playing the guitar in early live performances wow and if he wasn't miming they would basically just turn his amp down <laughs> his amp would either not be off or it'd be like on two mm. as opposed to uh, you know spinal tap at eleven Again, you know, they loved having him in the band. He was a huge part of it. And the, the image and the overall, you know, popularity of the band, people loved him. And he said they had two albums. Their third album was called The Holy Bible. And that is their, apparently, their, uh, the album that, that everybody knows. Them. You know, every every band has that one album, mm-hmm. uh, if they're popular, that, uh, you know, people refer to. And the Holy, the Holy Bible was that for the Manic Street Preachers. <laughs> now, Nicky Wire was helping out with some of those but apparently Richie wrote 80% of the lyrics on that Holy uh, that Holy Bible album and he was very well read he was very on top of things politically and had a lot of opinions a journalist just described him and said he was central to the Manic's allure and an outsider in his own ensemble he was he wasn't really a musician he did not get involved in the studio. In fact, James Bradfield, who was a lead guitarist, actually played all the rhythm guitar uh, parts as well. So he never actually played the guitar parts on the, the thing. Just just, just just one second. Gord, sorry, man, you're making a ton of noise. And this mic picks up everything. <laughs> He's like not amused. He's like, yes, what the hell is happening? All right where was i okay so james uh bradfield played most of the guitar parts on the albums uh and a journalist had said i saw the the manics on their holy bible tour uh their last is a four piece what i remember of the gig today is edwards giving off an Eerie luminescence. I can't say that word. It's my colloquial. Luminescence. Yes. He hugged the back of the stage swamped by shadows, yet he radiated more charisma than the other three bandmates combined. And I love this line and this description. He said he looked like an agitated ghost (laughs) oh i love that edwards did suffer it was well known and he was very very open and public about the fact that he suffered from severe bouts of depression in his life and he was open about that in interviews there's one famous incident which is known as the for real incident where he was being interviewed by a journalist from the enemy who Basically questioned, I guess, the validity of the band in terms of because they were kind of thought of as a punk band as well. And if you've known any punks or anyone who's into punk, the last thing they want is for that, you know, uh, that to be questioned. So during the interview, Richie took out a razor blade and began carving something into his his arm throughout the entire interview. And it turns out what he was, uh, the interview ended when there was blood gushing all over the carpet uh, backstage. Yeah. yeah. And you could see, you could see the pictures. Online, oh, uh, but he had carved for real into his arm just to prove that he was in fact for real—that he was an actual punk—and it was about the music and not about the fame. You know, a lot of musicians like that that are true artists, I think, really do wrestle with the fame thing. This is very much uh, an example of that. He, he really, really did wrestle with that.
1: They're—they're they're not there for the fame and money. They're there because of the art and their need to produce that art and that fame and money can actually be a detriment to their well-being
0: exactly do you know what though I've always had this issue with that I know it's always me being blah 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 but I gotta say you know
1: what then don't fucking release your shit that's the difficulty of it is that they needed to be successful so they can continue to do it because then he works at a grocery store for the rest of his life and he's miserable that way too. Like I know one of my favorite musicians, probably neither
0: of you will know who he is, but a guy named Scott Walker didn't want that life. And he went and became, and he became a res- a recluse and sure. he d- just did art on his own terms because he didn't want that life. He had been a teenage pop star mm-hmm. and he, he, you know, the sun ain't going to shine anymore. That's them. He just like, no, I don't want this. I don't need all this fame and wealth and stuff. I just want to make art. And so, Like, just don't be that that size of an artist. Don't don't pursue that path. I just find that always just rubs me a bit the wrong way. You know, oh, fame is so painful. Well, you have a choice.
2: So, yes, after the incident, the for real incident where he uh, obviously self harmed and mutilated himself, he was suffering quite a bit mentally at that with depression, uh, insomnia. He was quite thin at that point. There was you know, rumors that he had battled anorexia or some sort of dis- uh, eating disorder uh, and was at that point using alcohol was the only way he could sleep. So before the release of the third album, The Holy Bible in 94, he checked into Whitechurch Hospital and then The Priory. And I've The Priory is a name I've heard. I don't know if you know it, but it's... It's a well-known mental hospital in the United Kingdom, which also has a rehab. But it's where a lot of famous people from Britain, if they're trying to dry out or beat drugs, uh, you know, that's where they end up. So I've heard that name quite a bit. And once he went into the Priory, the band had booked gigs at the Reading Festival and Tea in the Park, which is a big scottish festival and he was not able to appear with them so they appeared as a three-piece and you'll see this kind of as a running theme throughout this story is the band really because they were friends really did truly love him uh and they used the money they made from those gigs to pay for his rehab i thought that was quite sweet
0: it's very generous yeah very very generous
2: Um, I thought that was really really cool and we'll talk a little bit more about how uh, loyal and uh, faithful they were to him throughout the years but that was the first time where I was like oh man that's that's pretty cool. So that all leads up to uh, he was in there in 1994 brings us to any band, if they're big in the United Kingdom, their main goal is they want to break in the United States. Everybody wants to break in the United States. Dan talked about the tragically hip. The tragically hip were never popular in the United States, and people point to the the failed. Although I didn't think it was a failure, I thought it was a very good uh, performance on Saturday Night Live, where they played two new songs. But they just they never broke in the states. So the Manic Street Preachers were at that point where they were having enough success in the United Kingdom, that they thought it was time to try their hand, and they had a promotional tour with Bradfield, the lead singer, and Richie booked to go in the United States. For the Holy Bible, it was a promotional
0: You know, what's really interesting, I just want to interject there, is I'm I'm making this podcast longer and I feel bad, but I got to say this because I'm a music lover. It's funny you bring that up because I've read biographies and stuff of so many of my favorite artists, like Soft Cell, like uh, Boy George, like all the bands that I love from that era, so basically their sound was destroyed by record company pressure to Break Big in the U.S. Oh, the biggest of all was Simple Minds. They compromised their sound tremendously so they could get a top 40 presence in the U.S. OMD, the same thing with that horrible song If You Leave from Pretty and Pink. I love that song. It's a shit song. It doesn't represent the band at all. It doesn't. It doesn't. I'm OMD is like my second favorite band and that is not them. And it's funny. So made like alive and kicking is not simple minds. A human league, same thing happened. The pressure from the record companies was massive for them to, um, to perform well in the U S.
2: No, you're totally, totally right. And Simple Minds is a fantastic example. Uh, I think I sent you, if we're speaking personally, uh, a link for a podcast. Yes, you did. Yes. The first episode is about Simple Minds, and it talks about that exact thing. Basically how Simple Minds was kind of this post-punk band who had these great albums, like, uh, was it, Fascination Song? I'm trying, I always blank on album names, but uh, you know they had Love Song and all these These great songs, and then in 1984, 85, whenever The Breakfast Club came out, uh, they were offered Don't You Forget About Me. And the only reason they did that song is because the Pretenders turned it down. I had no idea. And a lot of hardcore Simple Mind fans will point to that being... Exactly what Riley was talking about. Their kind of their introduction to the United States. A lot of the U S didn't know them until that song. And people love that song and it's a Mm -hmm. stadium song. It gets a huge thing, but die hard, simple minds fans cannot stand that song and this you know the subsequent stuff after that which was you know a al- lot like riley said alive and kicking and you know those albums so they really think don't you forget about me was the death of simple minds okay so yes they were about to take that leap over to the united states of uh, manic street preachers to promote the holy bible and on February the 1st, 1995, they were uh, two of the members, Bradfield and Richie, were staying at the Embassy Hotel on Bayswater Road in Bradfield. And Bradfield went to Edward's room in the morning and he was gone. Apparently, he had checked out of the hotel at 7 a.m., and there was no trace of him. They they could not find him. So they had to start digging in. Missed the flight, obviously. In the two weeks leading up to his appearance, he had withdrawn two hundred pounds a day from his bank account, which totaled twenty eight hundred pounds by the time, which is probably over four thousand dollars. Like mm. like by the day of their scheduled flight. Now, some people speculated that that wasn't abnormal because he would have needed money for the U.S. trip. Although you would have think if it was a promotional thing, that some of that would have been covered by record companies and managed. I don't know. I've never been on a promotional tour of the United States, but it was also mentioned that he had ordered, and this is what we were talking about earlier, a new desk for his his flat or his apartment in Cardiff. Now, that doesn't seem like something you would do if you were just going to either kill yourself or or disappear but there was no record of the desk ever having been paid for, like it was never paid for so that is not where the money went there's a book called a version of reason by an author emma forrest and she said the night before he disappeared he was with a friend and he gave her a book called novel with cocaine while he was staying at the hotel and a biography He removed some books and videos from his bag. Among one of the things he removed was a copy of the play Equus.
1: One of the happiest plays out there. He wrote Amadeus, too.
2: Yeah, if you like being naked on stage.
1: Sean and I were in a production of Amadeus. Actually, you know who did that? And this is one star I respect
0: because he's trying to go against type. Daniel Radcliffe did it.
2: Yes. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Mm -hmm. Yes, he did. And yes, Dan and I did do Amadeus on stage. Dan, do you remember who
1: you played? I played the Royal Chamberlain. I can't remember his name. It was an Austrian name.
2: I played Count von Rosini, Rosini von Rosenberg. Yeah, we didn't have big parts in that play. So, sorry, this is going to be four hours long again. Uh, So Equus, he had wrapped uh, all these things carefully in a box with a note that said, I love you, and decorated like a birthday present. And they also included a picture of a house and a picture of Bugs Bunny. And I never made this connection, but when I was discussing this with my cousin, he pointed it out. And what was Bugs Bunny's favorite famous saying? What's up, Doc? That's all, folks. Thank you, Riley. That's all, folks. That's all, folks. Yeah, you get a a point as well, Dan, because technically you are correct. But yes, that's all, folks. I love that you gave Dan the participation award. You get the gold star. So he addressed this package uh, to his on and off girlfriend, Joe. And from that, he took his wallet car keys, some Prozac, and his passport. Uh, He left behind his toiletries, his fully packed suitcase for the US, and some of his Prozac. So he didn't take all of his Prozac. And then he drove to his apartment in Cardiff, leaving behind his passport, his Prozac, and a toll booth receipt there. And in the two weeks that followed, so he was basically missing from February the 1st to the 14th. The two weeks that followed, uh, he was apparently spotted at the Newport Passport Office, the bus station in Newport, uh, by a fan who didn't know that he was missing because it wasn't the age of social media and the Internet. Uh, So it wasn't widely reported. But uh, the fan was apparently had had a discussion with him. They chatted for a while and then he left. A taxi driver reported that on February the 7th, he claims he picked him up from another hotel, drove him, uh, the King's Hotel, which is a different hotel, drove him around the valleys and to his hometown of Blackwood. And he reported that Richie apparently was speaking in a Cockney accent, which occasionally slipped into a Welsh accent, and asked if he was able to lie down in the back seat. And eventually they reached Blackwood and the bus station. He said this is not the place and was asked to be taken to the Pontypool Railway Station. He didn't get out there. Eventually, he got out at the Seven View service station and paid the $68 pound cab fare. So all of this took place from the 1st of February till the 14th, from basically Bradfield going to his room and him not being there until the 14th. While this is happening, his his family and his bandmates were pleading with him through the media to make some sort of contact with them, which he did not. On the 14th of February, his car, which I'm going to mess up, uh, his Vauxhall Cavalier, which is basically, I guess, the European version of a Chevy Cavalier, uh, received a parking ticket at the Severn View service station. And on the 17th of February, the vehicle was reported as abandoned. They didn't know it was his car. Then the police went into it and examined it. They discovered the battery to be dead, so it had obviously been sitting there a while. Uh, The car had been lived in. He had been living in the car. There were photos he had taken of his family Mm. in the days prior leading up. And a lot of people speculate that because of the gas station's proximity to the, the, I'm probably mispronouncing it, but it's the Severn Bridge, which is the big bridge uh, in, in Wales that connects it, it was a known suicide site, which a lot of bridges are, obviously. And I've looked at the bridge online; it doesn't look at all like I thought it was. It, it basically looks like a smaller version of you heard that <laughs> of the uh,
0: is, is your is your cousin purging? Like, what was that?
2: <laughs> I don't. What? I don't know. I just heard that the last one. i sure. <laughs> he's. Uh, it's he's a
0: he's,
2: he's he's a very vocal vocal person. So. The bridge, uh, essentially, if you look at it online, it, it looks like a miniature version of the Golden <laughs> Gate Bridge. What? Can you hear something else? He just sneezed. Oh, uh, My cousin did?
0: Yeah, he's yeah. blowing his nose or something.
1: Yeah,
2: sorry. Uh, I'm like, dude, I keep looking to see if my shirt fell off or something. I'm having a wardrobe malfunction. Um So the bridge actually looks like a miniature version of the Golden Gate Bridge, except it's white. So it doesn't look at all. I thought it would be this old kind of rustic bridge, like the one in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom or something, because it's in Wales. But it's this it's this big ass bridge, but it's not super high. So it's widely believed that he jumped from that bridge.
1: And what's and sorry, and it's just a river underneath. Yeah. Mass current.
2: So when you look at the river, it's funny. It's not super wide and apparently it's not very deep. Hmm. Oh. And this will become, you know, more of a, a point later because they never found his body. Yeah. So if if he jumped from the bridge, you would figure If he drowned, like it's not like the Golden Gate Bridge where if you jump, I think you get killed on impact, right? It's high enough that that would happen or you would break enough bones that you'd be in serious trouble. Uh, This bridge doesn't look like that. Although if your goal was to die, you know, it might be a different story. That being said, people who knew him and his family have maintained and said that he was never the type to contemplate suicide. And he himself was quoted in 1994 and said, in terms of the S word, that does not even enter my mind. And it never has done in terms of an attempt because I am stronger than that. Uh, I might be a weak person, but I can take pain. That's a very strong sentiment, like a very strong statement to make, uh, especially considering he disappeared a year later.
0: Did he suffer a psychotic break?
2: So we'll get to theories and that uh, there's some interesting things coming up. But he was he was having issues, obviously, mentally because he had just gotten out of rehab or, you know, the priory. So he was having issues with alcohol, was self-harming and self-mutilating, and he was dealing with an eating disorder. So that would mess you up. The, the main thing that is bizarre that makes me kind of go, I don't know if this is a suicide is that his body was never recovered, mm-hmm. you know, and there's, there's things coming up, which are going to make you go hmm, as well. So since he disappeared and he was, he was never seen again in Wales uh, or Cardiff or anywhere around there, he's reportedly been spotted in a market in Goa, India and on the islands of I'm not going to say these uh, because I'll mispronounce them, but they're two islands in the Canary Islands. And there's been other alleged sightings of Edwards uh, in the years following his disappearance, although none of these have proved conclusive. None of them have ever been confirmed by investigators. And one thing that was so there was CCTV footage of him crossing the bridge at 2.55. Apparently, he checked out of the hotel at 7 a.m. So 2.55 p.m. is what they... And he's on foot.
0: He's on foot.
2: Yeah, what they thought for years, because those CCTV footages, a lot of them, it's hard to tell who the person is or even what time of day it is. Mm. 23 years, this is how piss poor the investigation into his disappearance was. It took them 23 years before his sister applying pressure. It was discovered that the, the clock... Uh, And the CCTV thing, the bridge for the toll bridge was a 24-hour clock. So 2 o'clock would have been, 2.55 would have been 14.55. So it was only 23 years after the fact that they realized that, wait, he was was crossing that bridge at 2.55 a.m.
1: Oh, okay. They couldn't tell that it was nighttime? Yeah, I was just going to say that.
2: Apparently not. Apparently, it was very tough to discover. And mm-hmm. like I said, the investigation was so shitty that it took them 23 years to even figure out that the clock was a 24-hour clock. You know, uh, it's said that the the investigation was far from satisfactory. Uh, one author, Simon Price, asserts the police may not have taken Edward's mental state into account when prioritizing his disappearance. And uh, his sister has been very, very vocal. You know, it took them two years to analyze the CCT. He had been, he had been missing for two years before they even looked at the footage and 23 years before they figured out.
0: that's weird in itself.
2: Yeah. uh, Wrong time of day. But there was
0: no, um, there was no evidence of any wrongdoing, right?
2: Well, no. I
0: mean, other than. Well, there's no body. uh,
2: There was no body.
0: So they wouldn't amp it up if. They didn't think it was a crime.
2: Well, they clearly did not. Uh, so, no. I guess they had no motive or no uh, cause to believe that that it was, uh, you know, a homicide or anything other than a suicide. But you know, the family was quite insistent upon the fact that, you know, as you would be, mm-hmm. uh, that they they wanted to know what happened to their their son and their brother. Very, very close to his family. His family had the option of declaring him legally dead. Uh, as of 2002 so seven years after the fact and onwards and they chose not to for for many years and kept the case open as a as a missing person until 2008 when they finally officially allowed him to be presumed dead just because they had to take care of things financially and stuff with his estate Hmm. right so once that happened they uh they did get control of the estate and the file was closed So we'll jump to 2009 for a bit. I'm just going to close this stuff up, and then we're going to talk about uh, some theories and some interesting information. Uh, 2009, so this would be 14 years after he disappeared, the Manic Street Preachers released uh, an album called Journal for Plague Lovers, which is an album of material where all the lyrics were written by uh, Richie. And the songs on the album all deal with mental illness, confusion, religion... There's the final track on the uh, the the album is called William's Last Words. I don't know the song. Now, having listened to it, they think it was sort of a goodbye from Richie. But uh, the fact that they put together again, they paid for his rehab. They put together 14 years after the fact an album that is just full of his lyrics. It's all his lyrics. To me, is mm. is pretty special. It's clear that they really uh, they really loved him, and they asked uh, Bradfield about the album and he said it was an attempt to finally secure the legacy of their former member and the result was that during the recording process it was as close to feeling his presence since his disappearance and there was a sense of responsibility to do his words justice and that was a a part of the whole thing of letting enough time lapse once we actually got into the studio it almost felt as if we were a band as close to him being in the room as possible.
0: Jim I want to say something here Um... Sure. Of course, that's what I do. One of my favorite examples of that, you're just talking about going back and looking at Joy Division, because it wasn't as, as long a time required for this, but one of the greatest examples of that ever in the history of music would have been everybody who went back and took that second look at Bowie's Black Star album. Mm. Because Black Star was first released when he was alive, and then when they realized that he had he died, Everybody went back and revisited Black Star, looking at it through the lens of this was written by someone as a posthumous letter to the world. Yep. And I mean, Lazarus, if you look at the lyrics, there's a song called Lazarus and it's basically about his career and what he's saying about his career. And it's just such a fucking genius album.
1: It's a difficult album to listen to. Oh, it's incredibly difficult. Right. And not Not because it's bad, but because it's so, if you know the story behind it, like you're mentioning, right? That he knew he was dying when he wrote it. He knew exactly what was happening.
0: Yeah. He talks about being on so much medication is, you know, and just everything he's going through. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's, it's a genius thing. And when you go and and look at it as a letter to the
1: world of a dying man, it's just, wow. I know we're going off on a tangent again with that album too. Did he not do a video for Lazarus? And and Blackstar, and
2: yeah, Blackstar, and he's, he's
0: completely—he looks like an emaciated old man, yeah. and the—he's wearing a blindfold, and the eyes are buttons that are sewn on.
2: Yeah, it's it's always tough when you see that stuff. I remember the—if uh, you ever watched the videos of of Freddie Mercury, the last public appearance with him in Queen. I think they won a Brit award or it was, they won an award and it was the last time anybody ever saw him in public. And it was just, you see him and it's just heartbreaking.
0: And re- and read the lyrics of the show must go on, which is from their last album,
2: the making of that video and just what it even took to for him to get through. Because as Dan said, it was very much like Bowie where he, he knew mm-hmm. I mean, he knew he was, you know, he, he didn't have a lot of time left.
0: See, I have so many arguments with people about why I'm such a, a bitch about music and like why I just qualify shit like Taylor Swift and all that nonsense on the radio. That's why, because I listened, I've listened to such great, important musicians, like who had a real point of view and something really important to say, other than songs about relationships that I just can't listen to that kind of music and be in any way satisfied. Like aqua yeah well yes or any stupid pop band i just can't listen oh, to that shit God. and feel any sense of satisfaction or anything i just feel like oh you made some money good for fucking you anyway i'm off my box now continue sean
1: yeah,
2: i think you know it's uh, per- i mean she may have things to say to a different generation you know i can understand uh, but i understand your point
1: stop being nice sean just tell him he's an idiot and shut his pie hole.
2: Like, I, I, I could see where Taylor Swift might have something to say to, you know, my uh, child who was like 12 at the time. And, and that's not to demean her in any way, but it just. Uh...
0: And Dan, let me just say to you, I'm 50 fucking eight years old, so I can only shut my pie hole halfway now anyway. <laughs>
2: <laughs> nice. Love it. As I was reading that quote, Bradfield, one last thing he said is, I thought he was being a bit more uh, vicarious about it than about it all than he was. I didn't assume it was all about him. It was very nihilistic, album infused with intent and ideas and observations. We did see a lot of dark introspection there, and he was looking outwards as well. So, you know, Richie was a, a man in a, a dark place, and you know his band thought that he was possibly too fragile for the world, but at the same time. They obviously believed that there was a possibility he may still be alive as well. Uh, speculation that he might have faked his death began immediately. Uh, we talked about all those sightings, but without a body, it was it was hard to discount those. It was tough for the family, the awful sense, they said, of just not knowing. Maybe we're going to get an answer. We may hear from them one day. Uh, You know, that ambiguity is hard to live with. But not everyone sees this. There's two camps, basically, as there would be in a case like this, that really do believe that he just jumped off that bridge. And there's other people that believe that he is still out there. Yeah. And um, there's been books written about it. One of them that came out last year is is quite interesting, some of the theories in there. One of the things that's interesting about it is the forward for that book was written by uh, Richie Edwards' sister, Rachel, because she believed in a lot of these theories. And there's evidence in there that really does kind of point you towards, I don't know that he did kill himself. Mm. It's just too much of a, a coincidence or fascination. Uh, he had members of his family who had similarly disappeared and isolated themselves from their residence, uh, from their relative story. Uh, he extensive library of books, which many of them dealt with uh, disappearance or a life in exile. Growing fascination with writers and characters in exiles. Uh, Arthur, I should know this. Rimbo.
0: Right, Arthur Rimbaud, the devil poet the poet from hell, yes, yes. I studied him, it always oh, stuff's really sexual and dark like you, exactly
2: yeah, exactly, and J.D. Salinger who we all know, catcher in the rye um, there was also a theory that he had undiagnosed Asperger's, one uh, trait of that can be shutting out the world as a way of coping, there's a mailman who got in touch with with Rachel uh, Edwards and said that he had seen uh, Richie that day on the bridge and had talked to him and actually reported that he was unwell to the, the person that was in charge of the toll, and apparently that information was never logged. There's also a woman that was apparently in his hotel room the night before named Vivian, and everybody's been trying to locate this woman for years. Uh, He tried to give her his passport, apparently. Uh, I don't know how anyone would know that. It just talks about this woman a lot. I can find a lot of information on her, but I'm not sure exactly how this information has been passed along because nobody can find her. But he had an aunt, his great Aunt Bessie. We all have a great Aunt Bessie. I don't.
1: I don't. Yeah, That was a stupid comment, Sean. Jesus, fuck. I'm
0: embarrassed for you, man.
2: I don't have an Aunt Bessie either. I don't know why. Like, isn't...
0: Let's see the name of a cow usually, right?
2: Yes, by by all of us, I meant none of us. Sorry, my brain just went to a different place there. Uh, anyways, he had an aunt who uh, had shunned everybody in the family and stayed in her childhood home for 80 years living as a hermit. He had an uncle named Shane who had immigrated to America in the early 60s and became a professor at the University of Austin, cut off all contact with the family, was off the grid. They didn't know what he was doing, what he was up to. And that, uh, yeah, there was he constantly referred to the catcher in the rye. He loved that book and he loved JD Salinger and JD Salinger, obviously famed for a life of isolation and mm-hmm. essentially a self-imposed exile. And
1: he's also a prick. You had to run him with him at a simple minds concert.
2: So yes, his other, uh, other books that he was fascinated with hearts, uh, heart of darkness, obviously the Joseph Conrad book, which is about, Kurtz. The apocalypse know, Now. Uh, now. Yep. Yeah, it became Apocalypse Now um, with, you know, Kurtz uh, living not in exile, a self-imposed exile in the heart of Africa.
0: Can I ask you a question, though, before you go ahead? I want to back your trailer up a little bit. Sure. This seems to indicate what you told me about his family, that there's a huge, huge history of mental illness in the family. Mm-hmm. Or or aberrant behavior.
2: Well, I mean, you know, if you have one member, more than one member of your family who just basically takes off and doesn't want to deal with the family and just wants to live their lives, but yeah, it looks like it was a common uh, a common theme in the family: isolation and wanting to be alone and uh, and taken off. And I mean, it doesn't actually say they were mentally ill, but. You could surmise that they were bizarre. But getting back. So our French poet, uh, Riley, if you want to say the name again. Artur Yes. Delivered his masterpiece, A Season in Hell, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as soon as he delivered that to publishers or whatever, it was promptly off Opted for a life in the wilderness. Took off into the woods after that. Here's something very, very interesting. Because when I heard this story originally, this is what popped into my head. And then when I read this, I was like, well, that makes sense. But also at the same time, no way. One of his favorite films was the 1983 film, Eddie and the Cruisers which told the story of a 1960s, do you know this movie? Yes, I remember it. Riley, of course, The Dark Side. We all know that famous song on the dark side, right? So it's the story of a 1960s rock and roll band. It's lead singer who's a lyrical genius, Eddie Wilson, vanishes after a dispute with his record label over the band's second album. The name of the album is A Season in Hell. And it's about a journalist who's played by Alan Barkin following uh, the band. And he essentially faked his death and you see that, spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't seen the movie, you find that out. Yes, so the, that movie, he loved that movie. One of his favorite television shows was an old television show called The Fall and Rise of Reginald Perrin, which was a black comedy about uh, the title character who had faked his own death. Most of the authors that he was reading at the time uh, were all... he. It's weird because he had... Books that weren't even about, primarily about disappearance or exile or stuff, they found books in his library and they would take them out and he had like earmarked the pages, you know, and or highlighted stuff as they were going through the
0: books. So he was obsessed with the theme of disappearing.
2: Yes. What I was going to say is, yeah, in those books, if the book wasn't about that, if you flip through it, you would find a passage that he had found in, and, and it would be about disappearing. Exactly. Hmm. I,
0: I think that's what he did then, right?
2: It's, you know, it's, I, I mean, I've read so many, there's theories I'm not even talking about, and I'll give you an example that are so bizarre that you're just like, what? Where somebody said they thought they had mapped his whereabouts enough that they were convinced that he had died in the 2004 tsunami in Thailand. Oh, okay. You know, like they were convinced that he was there and that he had perished uh, during this. So there's a lot of stuff like, you know. Yeah, but how does
1: he get out of, the UK, uh, unless he's like some sort of mastermind who has alternate passports, how does he get out of the UK undetected? You can get out of the UK really easily. Well, how does he get out of Europe? At some point, he needs a passport to get to Thailand. I mean, it's not. It, I bet you not, can
0: get. I bet two hundred pounds will get you into Thailand. From where? From wherever. I'm sure that like two hundred bucks in the, in the in the in the hand of the a guy would let you through the border.
1: I, I just, well, I think it's, I mean, Thailand's a very law and order country, right? Yes, and no. I'm just saying that for him to get on a plane, to cross a ferry, to be in Europe somewhere, to go in an airport, to leave, I don't know. know—that—that that He's got money. That, but he doesn't have that much money. That seems like a bit of a stretch to me that he was there. I don't know.
2: I No, I totally agree, which is why I was only bringing it up as an example yeah, yeah, yeah. of yeah. like, Ideas that sound preposterous, you know, yeah, that sure. are, people are just grasping at straws. There is further evidence supporting that Richie, while he was in rehab, became very good friends with a, a woman uh, and they used to have discussions. And she said once she got out, she was going to Israel. And apparently he became fascinated with this idea to the point that in 1994, the year before he disappeared, he started getting all these tattoos that were related to Israel, a diagram of the entry to hell below Jerusalem based on an illustration from the 1949 version of Dante's, the divine comedy. And he always kind of made a point. There was photographs taken of him in the last year. And he made a point of showcasing or highlighting these tattoos. So a lot of people have speculated that perhaps this was him trying to leave clues or, you know, alert people to the fact Uh, if you look back at it, it's, Maybe it was just a coincidence or not, but I, I would um, say
1: that the the suicide on that bridge doesn't make sense to me because there a body or the remains of a body would have been found by now. But it's, it's not deep uh, or wide, right? Is it possible that it gets swept? So, like, where does the Severn run to? The ocean?
2: I'm not sure, to be honest.
1: I mean, I guess, it's, but even then, I still think it's it's so...
2: It's, when you look at how it doesn't look super, super wide, and it's not super deep. So it looks, and there's, from what I understand, towns where people are fishing, like there's, you know, that go along this, this river. So you would think, like, I mean, even if, there wasn't a body there would have been some sort of trace either a piece of clothing mm-hmm. or something from it you know there was a shoe or what there was nothing mm-hmm. there's like no sign of him uh at all yeah he he basically disappeared off the face of the earth so he's either he either did kill himself or he's as with andy kaufman and elvis right now yeah. uh living uh, another life but i'll just tell you because i i know i'm running long here so i'll uh I'll just tell you a, a couple of things, and I'll wrap it up, and we can talk a little bit about it. But to this day, his parents did end up passing away, so he only has his his sister is the only one who's still uh, alive, and she still, to this day, maintains that he could be alive, and she and wants to know what happened to her her brother if he did kill himself. You know, she wants to know where he is and what happened, and she just hasn't had that closure you know, that uh, that people need in the grieving process. But in a statement, uh, you know, the Metropolitan Police to this day say Richie Edwards is still listed as a missing person. The case remains open and we're welcome uh, to any information the public have to support our with our inquiries. Both parents passed away. His sister uh, is still alive. I mean, the the group is still playing. They're still going. They're still playing festivals. They're still recording. Uh, they never really relied on him in a musical sense, so they kept going after he passed away. Or, sorry, after he, he disappeared, they became Brit pop stars uh, with the album "Everything Must Go." Wire Nick Wire uh, took over as the uh, the chief lyricist, um, and they became more a poppy yeah. type. Brit pop type. I'm
0: looking at them right now. They have kind of a Mark Boland T-Rex look.
2: Yeah. It's funny because it, it like any group, I guess you could say this about. But if you look at them in stages, you look at early them compared to you know as they go along. You can definitely see the influence he had in terms of their image and how that image kind of changed when he was no longer around. Wire, who is now the uh, the chief lyricist of the group, had this to say: he "Said I understand why Richie would be regarded as a bit of a cult figure." He was one of my oldest friends. We played football together as seven-year-olds. However, I was never really upset that people latched on to him afterwards. That's what happens in rock and roll. As kids, I'm sure we felt the same about Jim Morrison and Ian Curtis. Rock stars who die young have always seemed glamorous. So that's as close as they've come to really acknowledging uh, that he may be dead. But uh, this is something, two things that I don't know if this says they think he's still alive or it's a sentimental thing, or they're just good people. But I thought both of these were pretty, pretty cool, and you know, a little tug at the heart. The band still play pays a quarter of their earnings into an account for Richie. Cool. Even though they're a three piece, and they still at every gig place a microphone stand and keep a place on stage for Richie in the event that one day he returns. Oh, that's awesome. One of the things that they're quite famous for one of their big songs is suicide is painless riley i'm sure you know what that's or dan may know know. what that's better known as suicide is painless theme song from mash exactly so they did a they did a cover of that uh and he's prominently featured in that video and you look at him there and he's kind of this you know good looking uh, you know the hair, and he looks like a rock star. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and then you look at pictures of him right before he died, and he was very, very thin. He almost, he almost like sunken cheeks, and that sort of. He almost looked like a different person. And I mean, he was. I guess he would still. He just looks different if you look at the pictures uh, closer to when he when he disappeared. But that's my story about uh, the Manic Street Preachers and Richie Edwards. And that's
0: very different than what we normally do. So cool. Yeah, yeah. We uh, we that's we never really do things like that. So that's good. See, you brought you brought a new flavor to the restaurant.
2: I try to. I mean, I think the Titanic thing was a little different too because it was a well-known story, but kind of approached it from a different. Well, angle. I
0: didn't know there was anything weird about the Titanic. Like any, I just thought, oh, you know, hey, boom, sink, done.
2: Yeah, well, a lot of, not a lot of people do, which is, uh, you know, but there is, which is why I thought, hey, this would be fun. And this was, uh, you know, like my son said, uh, yeah, I don't think you guys have really done anything in terms of musical. I know you've kind of touched upon not really, well, the Mostly Harmless was kind of a, an unsolved person. He wasn't really missing. They just didn't know who he was. Yeah, in
0: his strange life. Yeah.
2: But in terms of missing, uh, I'm sure this won't be the, the last missing person. Uh,
0: no, some of them discussed. are amazing. Hey, when you did the Titanic, did you mention that nurse that had been on all three boats?
2: Yeah, I talked Violet Jessica. I talked about her I just a lot. saw something yeah. about
0: her on the internet, and I'm like, hmm, yes.
2: Yes. Speaking of which, did you, gentlemen, hear about the uh, bottle that washed up on the, yes. the shores yes. of the day of Fundy, which they think may have been their... I guess analyzing it now to see if it was actually uh
1: from the Titanic yeah yeah it could be or they're saying it might be a hoax as well
2: I don't know I mean I saw a picture of it I don't know anything about how paper ages in what is know, that
0: noise is the year. vortex to hell opening in somebody's what is that
2: I am in an apartment that's very close to streetcars. <laughs> um, so there we go well that's
0: I think good i think we've covered that topic so okay well let's let's just go through the three of us and then we're done what camp do i fall into i think he escaped somewhere
1: dan i think i agree i'm with you on that as well sean
2: you know i wasn't sure at first but uh the more i dove into it and researched it there's just the lack of a body and how fascinated he was mm-hmm. with disappearances Mm -hmm. i would say i have to fall into the same camp where i i think there's a possibility he may i don't know if he's still out there but i don't think he died that day on the
0: bridge for him if he wanted a little more peaceful life and wanted to and like we said it was bread in the bone i just did a a sentence fragment so i'm guilty too so it's but bread in the bone there's a whole history of that behavior in his family there was also obviously some kind of antisocial disorder a mental disorder so you know and if he needed to be somewhere else good for him yeah i guess yeah yeah okay well dan mr dan dan the the magnificent do you
1: have business um i do look uh people there are a number of listeners out there that owe us a ton of money (laughs) a ton and we're coming a collecting no uh look folks just continue doing your thing it's really fun seeing the numbers uh, coming in from all over the world we have a bigger following Coming out of Australia now, which warms my heart to no end. It's one of my uh, favorite places that I've never been to in the world, so that's been uh, really cool seeing that. And then all the other, it, I, I don't know how that happens. People must just happen upon our show, but you know, you get odd places like Bhutan and Bahrain, you know, popping up. And I think what's that's Bhutan? Where Where's that? Bhutan. Why do you have to? Why do you have to put me on the spot? <laughs> it's it, it's a asian country now i'm gonna to have to look it up <laughs> yeah, like bhutan i've never heard of. bhutan is i feel like it's near like sri lanka and i'm probably completely wrong but i'm I, <laughs> why
0: do you have to put me on I'm, the spot? I'm not actually
1: i'm not i'm not wrong bhutan is north of bangladesh northwest of myanmar northeast of india not anywhere close to sri lanka
2: This is coming from the guy who asked me what body of water the Severn River empties into.
1: My point with that is if it went to the ocean. Then it could be. Dan, I'm
2: sending. I'm sending you over the shipping logs and all the toll booth information. I have schematics behind me. Okay.
1: Great. I just need. I just need to know the currents. What the currents were doing. At you that know, time. you mentioned
0: Bangladesh, and when I was very, very young, my first band ever was a band called The Pinups, and they were a punk band, and we had a song called Bangladesh Woman. And I remember the opening verse was Bangladesh a Woman, she's mean and she's wild. Bangladesh a Woman,
1: she's always with child. I uh, my first band, my Ribs, uh, we had a song. We had a song called uh, No Smarties in These Pants. Yeah, I sure you did. No. So, folks, if you like the weird, uh, then please, you know, tell people about us and uh, share the word of the weird with the world. You know, if you would like to send us a comment or, you know, even a show idea, because we're starting to get up there in terms of uh, what we're 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 nearing 50 we're nearing episodes to. Yeah. We're nearing fifty, so um, not that we have run out of ideas, but it could happen. And you know what I love because we have had this happen. I love when people do send us show ideas, and it's something that wasn't at all on our radar. Especially if you're if you're from uh, somewhere other than you know North America, where a lot of you know the the our culture feeds a lot of our stories. If you're from somewhere else in the world, I, we'd love to know your stories that maybe we can cover on our show, like Bhutan. Yeah, if we have any listeners in uh, Bhutan, if you're continuing to listen, send us uh, some Bhutan weirdness. All right, let's wrap this up because I'm I'm fading. Okay,
0: so all all right. right, Thanks for listening to the Weird folks. Thank you, Sean Tucker, for joining us. He'll also be with us for the next couple of episodes, just to add some color because we're celebrating the end of our first year. And uh, yeah, and then he'll be joining us periodically throughout the year, just to uh, just to throw some stories our way. So thanks tonight, Sean, for that wonderful story. And uh, that's all I have. So. Good night, Sean. Good night, Dan. Good night, everybody. We'll see you soon. Bye.
1: <laughs> That's
2: all, folks. <laughs>